Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would answer some patron emails. This is an email from patron Nathan, but before I do that, let's introduce the podcast. This is the podcast called Psychology in Seattle, and I am your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a professor and a therapist. Again, email from patron Nathan. Hey, Kirk, I wanted to tell you that your podcast is awesome. Oh, thanks. I'm a 19-year-old French kid who has always wanted to become a psychiatrist, and your podcast definitely cultivates my interest towards psychology. I'm wondering, how did studying and practicing psychology affect your mental health? Is it overwhelming to hear so many stories from struggling clients, or do you feel that your mental health has benefited from this? Good question. I think I've talked about this before on the podcast, maybe not this specifically, but yeah, it's a great question. I get asked this all the time. It's hard to answer quickly because basically I'd have to describe how all of my entire existence and life purpose intersects with the stress of the particulars of the job, which has morphed over time in comparison to the stress of any other job. So it's hard to, you know, describe quickly, but in a nutshell, being a therapist is indeed stressful in a number of ways. It's stressful to hear stories about trauma. It's not stressful to hear about people's problems. I've always had an easy time hearing people's stories of their troubles, but like anyone else, when I am exposed to stories of sexual abuse or any other kind of harm to someone, especially from another human being, it is difficult to hear that because it's scary. It makes me lose faith in the human race. I feel empathy for the person who went through it. So those are difficult stories here. Having said that, I don't specialize in that sort of work. And so I don't get exposed to that much of it. So People who specialize in that or work at an agency that specializes in working with, say, five-year-olds who get sexually abused, you're going to be stressed out a lot more by that side of therapy. So so for me, um, it hasn't been that bad. It's also very stressful to be responsible for other people's lives, not only for my clients, but my supervisees, and also I supervise people who supervise I also supervise professors who are responsible for the lives of students. And so I I never really thought about it, but I'm at the sort of top top of the food chain in a lot of ways, which is beginning to stress me out. I'm chair of my program, which means I'm responsible for all these, uh, you know, staff members and professors. I'm responsible for hundreds of students and alumni. I'm responsible for all my clients, I'm responsible for all my supervisees who are postgrads, I'm responsible for the people who are supervising, I'm supervising them in their supervision. Uh, it's, yeah, um, thanks for reminding me of that, patron Nathan. Yeah, it's, 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 it's stressful. There's no way around it. It's much easier to be at the bottom of the food chain. It's a lot less stressful because you're responsible for less. But as a therapist, you're, you're always responsible, at least in part. Now, some people have clients that require more stress regarding that responsibility than others. For instance, at the beginning of my career, ironically, I was I was working with clients that had a lot more issues and therefore their responsibility was much higher, more suicidality, more homicidality, more uh, you know, gang-related issues, more drug use. Whereas now, in my later years as a clinician, I have the luxury of working with clients who are what we call high-functioning, and there's not a lot to worry about. So ironically, as the more experience I get, the less need I have for that experience. Um, so, But yeah, it's, it's stressful to be respond. I mean, it can be literally a matter of life and death for suicide, homicide, eating disorders, drug use, overdoses, people die who are working with their therapist and their therapists are sometimes acutely aware of the fact that if therapy goes well, it might save their life. And if therapy doesn't go well, then they might die. 
And yeah, that's stressful. Now, having said that, that's not very frequent, but, but it's a thing. It's also stressful to be working mostly alone. We, as therapists in general, work very alone. Some therapists work, you know, in co-therapy situations um, where they're working with other people a lot or they're consulting with people a lot. But in general, therapists tend to work alone, even if they're working at an agency. So that can be stressful unless you do something about it. It's stressful to work at a job that doesn't really have a clear way of measuring success. Some clients have very easily measured success. They come in, they endorse 10 symptoms of depression, uh, you know, on a severe scale. And upon leaving your office after 10 weeks, they only endorse five uh, uh, symptoms of depression. So there are clients like that. But I'm here to tell you that most clients are not like that. Most clients come in with a, a variety of so-called goals, a variety of presenting problems, and many and many presenting problems have no way of measuring it. You know, like um, whether or not uh, your parenting is improved or not. Or when people come in complaining about an existential crisis, how do you measure whether or not they've resolved that issue? So it's hard. Um, or a client comes in and says they're not sure if they want to stay married or not. How do you measure the success of that therapy? Is it when they decide to stay married or when they decide to divorce or when they terminate therapy and say that that was money well spent and time well spent? I mean, it's just therapy has uh, – it's difficult to measure. You know, I, I often bring up the occupation as a plumber or, or even a dentist. Say you're a dentist and someone comes in, they have tooth pain. You assess the situation, investigate, discover it's a cavity. You so you diagnose, you present the treatment plan to the client. They agree to it. You 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 know deal with the cavity. You you know put a filling in it or whatever. And uh, a week later, they say no more pain. And they're so it's very measurable. You've you've succeeded in your treatment. Therapy is is not that way. Or. You, it could be 10 years before you see improvements because of the sort of thing that you're working on. Healing someone's relational traumas growing up can take years, decades. And so that, that can be stressful too. It can be stressful to have clients who hate you. Again, begin, begin, novice therapists tend to have more clients like this. As you gain more experience and, and prestige in your job, you tend to be able to sort of pick and choose the sort of clients you see. And I don't see clients like that anymore. But I remember having clients at the beginning of my career who hated me. And that's, that's very stressful. <laughs> um, th- you know, these are all very highly stressful elements of being a therapist and, um, and can't be denied. So patron Nathan, to your question, you know, does, uh, does it affect my mental health? Yeah, all those stresses will affect mine and other people's mental health. And therapists are responsible for developing a robust strategy for dealing with that stress. Consultation, personal therapy, exercise, good sleep, good diet, yoga, meditation maybe, supportive relationships, a big, big thing, being able to download to people, uh, self-awareness and other self-care practices. I always tell therapists when they're first starting out that unless they have someone to talk to every night after work, they are going to suffer. When you're, particularly when you're starting out for the first few years, you, you need, you're going to see, you know, five to 10 clients that day. And so many things are going to happen. And there's going to be so many moments of stress and success and achievement and victory and defeat and anger and sadness and happiness. And, and, you know, every, there's, there's so many twists and turns throughout a day as a therapist you're going to need to download about that when you get home. And so you need to be able to have someone to talk to about that. Now, of course, you have to be confidential, but there are ways of talking with, you say, your spouse that preserves confidentiality. And uh, without all of these 
ongoing strategies, therapists tend to suffer and they tend to burn out of the profession. Like I said, for me, I've managed well, and I find that most therapists manage well. And you just, you just learn how to deal with it over time. To, to think like, you know, for a patron Nathan, it's like, okay, well, how am I going to deal with this when it happens? Well, you don't know how to deal with it now. That's, that's, or or your, your ability to cope is probably limited right now. But that's the nice thing about being a therapist is there's lots of training. That it takes years to become trained. There's a lot of professors who come into contact, a lot of supervisors, a lot of colleagues. And, you know, you just slowly develop your self-care regimen. And, you know, you, you'll get there. And most people do. But I've seen some people get crushed by the stress, mostly because there is some sort of barrier to their self-care. Maybe, maybe they have barriers to reaching out for others for help or something like that. They feel like they need to do things on their own or they're perfectionistic or they don't want to burden other people with their problems or they don't trust other people or whatever. They, there's various different reasons why the self-care regimen wouldn't develop quite right. And it's usually, there's usually some kind of barrier to it that needs to be investigated by all involved. You asked if there was a benefit to being a therapist, you know, that sort of counterbalances the stress. And I will say, absolutely. There's many benefits. My, it's, it's my job. I get paid in a sense to be self-aware and engage in self-care. I think that's pretty cool. I essentially get paid to explore my psyche and to learn why I am the way that I am. And so over time, I've definitely become more aware of who I am. I sometimes get to vicariously heal through my client's therapy. Some people think that that's not okay, but, but there's nothing unethical about it at all. I'm here to tell you. If I'm working with a client who is healing from a wound that I have as well, then sometimes I vicariously heal through our interactions. As I'm working on ways to help heal that wound in the client, I vicariously feel myself being healed as well. You know, there's a lot of healing that happens in the act of uh, helping other people heal. And the more I learn about how to help others, the more I learn about how to help myself. There are frequently moments where I'm working on something with somebody and then I think, huh, I should probably practice what I preach here. So, you know, absolutely. There's, I, I can't imagine that I would be as self-aware as I am had I not become a therapist. Okay, patron Cindy wrote in, and she wanted to comment about the teen identity episode. She says, great episode, Professor Honda. She's referring to the episode that I did, I don't know, maybe <clears throat> six, 12 months ago about the, uh, you know, the uh, how teens develop their identity and their sense of self. Uh, let's see. This episode really resonated with me, she says. During high school and college, I was your stereotypical Asian girl who studied her butt off. I chose a major, electrical engineering, that satisfied my parents. I also chose it out of spite because they didn't believe I was smart enough to pull it off. Now I'm a 36-year-old who, who has changed careers three times, who has never been in a relationship, and who has been forced to move back into my parents' house. This is definitely not what I imagined my life would be at this point. So just chiming in here. Well, patron Cindy, yeah, it's, it's common. You know, it's not a big deal. Uh, it's nothing to be ashamed of for sure. There's plenty of people that move back in with their parents' house. We have this real weird culture about like, oh, moving back in with my parents. I mean, come on. It's, there are much more shameful things I can think of that one could commit, you know, in this society, <laughs> like killing someone or not being nice to other people or being purposely harmful to another human being. Moving back in with your parents, uh, who cares? So the rest of the world, that's just the norm. I mean, you, you never move out of your parents' house. So, And, you know, when finance, finances get tough, it's like, why not move back in your parents? You know, who cares? And uh, in your email, I can tell that you're definitely, you know, trying to get a sense of self and trying to figure out who you are and trying to find your self-esteem and your self-worth. And I think, you know, if you keep trying, you'll get there. 
She goes on, this episode has made me realize I had spent little time searching for my identity and am now suffering for it. I never wanted to be a 40-year-old still searching for myself, but, but here I am, still questioning every decision I make. Let my life be a lesson to everyone else. As long as you are doing, as long as you are not doing anything illegal, rebel as much as you want, even if others don't like it. Okay, me. Yes, this is excellent advice, patron Cindy. It 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 is uh, very important to quote unquote find yourself. It's it's a hard thing to really describe. Uh, it's easier said than done to quote unquote find yourself. If you find that you're doing everything to please other people, if you find that you you don't really that no one ever really asks you what you want, then later in life you will likely run into a wall and think, who am I? I'm not happy, but I don't really even know what I need to do to get happy. I don't know what I want. People like this tend to have low self-esteem, high anxiety, and a general inability to make decisions since they don't really know what they want. They'll often complain that they're indecisive or that they tend to be influenced by other people. And the judgment is that they're weak and they uh, just lack a backbone or something. But that's actually not the conceptualization that I have found to be accurate. It's more accurate to say that they were never given space as children to really grow and develop the muscle regarding that connects with what they want to manifesting what they want. If no one ever asks you what you want, then and you never am given the and you're never given the space to think about what you want, then you can be a 40-year-old and literally not know what you want from moment to moment. And you will do everything to please other people. What do, what do other people want? And you'll you'll find this with some people. You'll ask them, you know, like, what did you think about this movie? Or what did you, or what kind of food do you want? Or what kind of career would you like? Or do you even like your job? And what they'll say to those kind of questions is just like, oh, I don't know. Or, well, I don't know. What do you think? And again, there's a judgment about these people that there's something wrong with them. But it, it's, it's that they were never given the space. And if they're given enough space, they'll start to actually connect with what they actually feel. They have feelings down there and they have decisions down there and preferences and reactions down there. They just aren't used to connecting with those, with those parts of themselves. And so they just need space to do that. So yes, follow Cindy's advice. And uh, if you, you know, are one of those people, find out who you are. Asians in particular are vulnerable to this since there is a heavy cultural element of pride and shame around education and your career. Not that people from other cultures can't also have vulnerability to this. Now, this doesn't mean you need to rebel against your parents or other people. That's actually not the, uh, the answer. Although I do often lay this out for people in therapy. I'll say, right now you're in a space where you don't know what you want. And step two might involve a fair amount of rebellion just for rebellion's sake. You'll, you'll just, you'll be, you know, you need to go through the terrible twos in order to go to the next phase, the final phase, which is assertiveness while thinking about what other people feel. So, you know, often when people come in, in you know, my office with this problem, they say, oh, okay, I get it. I now, I just have to start telling people no. I have to start rebelling. I have to start like asserting myself against other people's wishes. And I'll say, yes, but that alone is not where you want to be eventually. But if you have to go through a phase where you find yourself rebel, just getting used to saying no, just for, just to, for the sake of saying no to people, then yeah, we'll go through that phase. But eventually, once you get comfortable with saying no, we want to go to a third phase where you evaluate as best you can what you want and what the other person wants. And if there's a conflict, then you figure out the fairest way to navigate that while respecting both people, including yourself. 
that sometimes involves saying no, but it sometimes involves saying yes. And so that is where you want to be eventually. But to skip from complete uh, lack of self and complete unassertiveness to complete assertiveness is a big leap. And so often there's a middle phase where you're simply just rebelling and saying no to everyone. It's not ideal, but it's better than being walked on. And it's a developmental step toward assertiveness. And the we can see that in children. Uh, most kids will go through what they call terrible twos or terrible fours. or <laughs> you, you'll, you'll see kids just saying no to their parents and their parents in particular, <laughs> they'll say no to just for, it's comical actually when you see kids kind of going through this phase, you know, that you'll know they love ice cream or something and, and you'll ask them, so do you want ice cream? No. And even though you know they want ice cream <laughs> and it's just like, they just, it's, it's a developmental phase. They, they're trying they You can, anyone who's been a parent has, has realized this. You realize that for for some for all kids, there's this click in their head of like, wait a second, I can say no. That's like an option, <laughs> and and so they love it. They just it's so much power, you know. Do you want ice cream? No, I don't want ice cream. Well, sometimes if you're 40 and you've never been through that phase because your parents basically like squash your ability to do that at the time, you might be 40 years old and going through the terrible twos. And although that might feel humiliating, it's not. It's just a, a developmental necessity moving on to the next phase. And that's why I think patron Cindy is talking about rebel as much as you want, because I'm guessing she's in phase two. All right. Now, how, how do you find yourself? Well, it's finding your purpose in life, who you are, what, you, what do you want. This is done by thinking about it, journaling about it, talking about it, being creative about it. You know, if you write songs or poetry or paint or something, or ex you can explore yourself through those means. Have other people listen to you and react to it. That's important. It's very important that, and this is what a therapist can be for you, is as you're thinking, cre creating, journaling, talking, someone else is listening and saying to you that you're okay to explore that, that, it, that they respect you and they believe in you. It's really a lifelong process, but it begins in early childhood. And if you, if you have a child yourself, it, it really begins when parents say to a child, you seem upset. Is that right? Are you upset? Just that question, that simple little question helps a child discover who they are. Because the child is having an emotional experience and but they don't really know what it is. They don't know who they are. They, they don't really know how to, they're not self-aware is the point. And so parents can reflect that and say like, oh, you, you seem very happy right now. Is, did, are you very happy right now? And through that interactional, you know, reflective process, kids begin to coalesce who they are, what their emotions are, you know, what their reactions are, what their preferences are, who they are as a person. And it's valued, you know, it's valued by, by, this, by their parent. The kid walks away from that saying, huh, is that what upset feels like? Because, <laughs> yeah, I felt kind of tense in my stomach and I, I, you know, was making a furrowed brow. Is that what upset is, you know? And, and you know, gee, my parents really are paying attention to me. They notice me and I notice me and I, and I internalize that noticing of who I am. And some parents never do that. They just ha have a culture or a way or a, or attachment problems where they just never do that with their kids. And, and the kids never develop who they are. Um, you know, for instance, some parents will see their five-year-old is upset and they'll say, don't be upset. Stop doing what you're doing. Now, if the kid is throwing a rock at someone, then by all means, come down on them hard. But if they're just simply having an emotional experience, one of the best things you can do is just reflect back to them and say, oh, you seem really angry right now. Is that right? Being noticed is a, a big healing mechanism that if you want a kid to not be angry, one of the best things you can do is say, you're angry. I get it. You know, I see that you're angry and you're upset. But to tell a kid to stop it, you know, every time basically denies that opportunity for the kid to for 
the kid to discover who they are. The same process is in therapy when a client comes to you and they're having an experience. One of the best things you can do as a therapist is reflect back to them and say, I see that you're upset. I see that, you know, that makes sense to me. It, you know, I think anyone would be upset with that. Or you seem really happy today. You seem like you're, you know, doing really well. Is that true? Um, as a teenager, parents might say, specifically regarding career and college, they might say, we'd love for you to go to college. You know how much we want you to go to college. We think that you would do great in college and a college degree will definitely help you with your career. So we're, you know, we're pretty energetic about you going to college, but we we're also very energetic about finding out what you want to do. Do you want to go to college? How do you feel about college? Do you have any questions about college? Uh, and, and so it's okay to tell your kids that you have high hopes for them and you have preferences, but at the same time, you ask them what they want and you give them a chance to think about what they want. Often, if you do that for them, they will choose a choice that you would like them to choose. This is, you know, so what happens is a lot of parents will do what I see is they'll do like a shortcut with their kids is, is they'll just start yelling at them to get them to do what they want. But what that does is it either keeps a kid in that first position where they're basically just a, just a doormat and then they turn 40 and they suddenly realize they've been living their life for other people and never for themselves. Or it pushes them into that second position where they're just going to rebel against you and not go to college just to spite you. When you allow kids to have that space to find their identity, they tend to actually choose good choices for themselves, which is exactly what you want as a parent. You want your children to choose a choice that is good for them. And when you see them making choices that are not good for them, it upsets you. But the answer, particularly for teenagers and young adults, the answer is not to lecture them or yell at them or force them or even incentivize them. The, the, the mission is to help them develop a sense of self so that they can choose good decisions for themselves that might even be better decisions than you thought of for them. So that's that. Well, let's take a break. And when we get back, I'll talk about something else. <laughs> All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't already become a patron, become a patron. Go to patreon.com. When you become a patron, you get access to all of our premium episodes, of which there are several. Some might say our best episodes are premium episodes. Also, know that part of your pledge goes towards various charities that we support. Uh, we'll send you, when you become a patron, we'll send you instructions on how to access the premium episodes, either on your computer or on your phone. Also, if you can, tell a friend or a colleague about the podcast. That's one of the ways in which this podcast grows. Also, rate us on iTunes. It's another way our podcast grows is when you rate us on iTunes. If, if you do rate us on iTunes, let me know, and I'll send you some swag. Also, if you're interested in Loot Crate, you know that box that you get in the mail with a bunch of nerd stuff and you use the promo code psychology you get a discount and we get a kickback so go to lootcrate.com and use the promo code psychology also uh, if you haven't already join the new facebook fan group run by famous patron linden it's a, a facebook page that has a lot of activity perhaps more activity than the Facebook page that uh, I run. See, I don't run the Facebook fan group. The fans do. And so go there and join that group and become part of the family. Speaking of famous patron Linden, I have an email from him. He says, hello, Kirk. Is it possible to have healthy triangulation and unhealthy triangulation in the same family system? So, yes, I like that question. It's very concise. Yes, it's totally possible to have healthy triangulation and unhealthy triangulation in the same in the same system. Now, let's provide some definitions here. Not a lot of people talk about healthy triangulation, but let's talk about unhealthy triangulation first. Bowen said that whenever you have conflict or tension or anxiety in a family system between two people, there tends to be a triangulation of a third person to provide stability for the system. And this stability 
might be at the expense of the relationships or happiness, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. And in fact, it's usually a bad thing. You have mom and dad fighting. So they both triangulate their daughter into the relationship by confiding in her. And she as a daughter doesn't have as much power as the parents and therefore just has to listen to it and suffer. And the parents get to release their tension toward the daughter and then the, uh, and then the parents don't fight as much anymore because the daughter is listening to both of them. Meanwhile, the anxiety has just moved from the parental relationship to the child. And, and so families tend to have a number of these kinds of triangles. Bowen thought there was often a primary triangle that exhibited the most dysfunction and the most rigidity and the most activity. But there are many triangles in any given family system or any system. Like at work, you have a system at work, and there tend to be triangles there as well. And it's complicated, but um, but yeah, so there's many different kinds of triangles. Uh, the Americans or the, or the allies in World War II, uh, we'll say the Americans were, uh, they, the Americans hated the Nazis, the Russians hated the Nazis, so they triangulated each other. So let me explain this maybe in a simplistic way. You had a massive, massive amount of animosity between Germans and Russians. And the and they were, you know, World War II started, and they triangulated the Americans into that. And as a result, the Americans and the Russians or the Soviets became friends. And as soon as the Nazis were gone, then you they, the Americans and the Soviets were now fighting again. So you'll see these triangles exist and, and it, it changes the way in which each relationship operates the way that the system is. So for instance, in the example with the parents who are fighting and they triangulate their daughter, if the daughter moves out of the house and that throws the system into chaos and a, another, a third element has to be triangulated or the parents have to resolve their problems on their own, which is not typical with undifferentiated people who have a hard time doing that. So health, healthy triangulation is something that is not talked about very often, but the definition that I use for it is it's a triangle that actually helps the, uh, the conflict get resolved or at least, you know, assist a little bit. So, for instance, in an unhealthy triangle, when the parents go to the daughter, the daughter listens anxiously and absorbs all that anxiety and then, this, and then the parents just go back to their normal self, and then a, another fight breaks out. And, the, and, the, system, and the, the system never changes. The routine just happens over and over again. But say the parents go to the daughter, and the daughter says, Well, Mom, I, I hear your side of the story, but you know, your Dad is saying this and that, and I really just think the two of you should talk about it. And I'm here to listen to you, but honestly, I, I don't see how this is my problem. I, I, I think the two of you have what it takes to work it out. Maybe you should go to a therapist. So that's a, now that's not necessarily healthy triangulation. There's no way to codify exact behaviors of healthy versus unhealthy. It has to be looked at on a case by case basis. But I hope you get my drift that there are ways in which a triangle operates that actually helps resolve the conflict. For instance, when couples come into my office, they always triangulate me into their conflicts they instantly sit down and start talking about a fight they've been in recently. And often they're trying to, uh, they're trying to engage me in a way that convinces me that they're right and the other person is wrong. So they're both triangulating with me. Now, if I, as a therapist, participated in an in a unhelpful way, then that's an unhealthy triangle because it's not really helping the system to resolve their problems. But I'm always attempting to engage in a healthy triangle with this couple. So I recognize the need for the triangle and I try to work with the triangle in a healthy way. So that's the difference between healthy and unhealthy. So famous patron Lennon is asking, can you have healthy and unhealthy triangulation in the, fam in the same family system? 
And the short answer is yes, families are highly varied, so it's totally possible, but it's not common. The, particularly as you have more problems in a family, more anxiety, more tension, more conflict, you tend to have more rigid triangulation. And the more rigid triangulation you have, the more anxiety, tension, and conflict you have. So they, they feed off of each other. And for an unhealthy triangle to exist in a highly anxious environment is actually pretty unusual. It can certainly happen, maybe briefly, but not ongoing. Now, if you have a family that doesn't have severe problems, then yeah, absolutely, I could see unhealthy and, and healthy triangulation existing side by side. But I'll tell you, in my experience, the general rule is, or the general thing I've seen is that most triangles are dysfunctional. Most people just don't know how to navigate those kinds of issues. You have to be very mature and you have to be very intentional and risk a lot of things when you try to engage in healthy triangles. For instance, let's say you're at work and your coworker comes up to you and starts complaining to you about your boss or about another employee, about a coworker. Imagine what it would take, how much risk and effort you'd have to put into that to that interaction to try to engineer that that one-on-one interaction to be functional for everyone involved. You know, uh, Jenny from the cubicle over comes up over to you and says, John is, you know, bothering me again with his cologne. It's just driving me crazy. And so, so right now you're being asked to participate in a triangle between John and Jenny. Now, what do you say to Jenny that makes it functional? Or do you go back to John? And, and because if you go to John and say, hey, um, Jenny really doesn't like you wearing this cologne. Can you not do that? Th- that actually, again, you just have to go case by case basis. That could actually perpetuate the problem because Jenny and John aren't given a chance to really talk about it uh, directly with themselves. But maybe that is functional because you're actually helping them to resolve it by just passing along that information. It's just hard to know what to do. And what most people do is they go, yeah, that John with his cologne, what a dork face. And then you just move on with your day, but you just participated in a dysfunctional triangle in all likelihood. Now, you know, you don't have to walk around in life constantly trying to engineer your life to be functional by any means, but I hope it demonstrates that uh, healthy triangles are actually kind of hard to, to engineer. Take it from me as a therapist. It's, it's hard. And I work a lot with supervisees who are seeing families and couples or even individuals because you can be triangulated by an individual client. You know, a husband comes in and starts complaining about his wife. Well, you're now being triangulated. And so I talk with therapists a lot about how to avoid participating in unhealthy triangles because I see a lot of therapists will start siding with one person or another. And that's like classic unhealthy triangulation. To, when, you, when you start seeing one person as the good guy and the other person as the bad guy, you're, you're being pulled into that triangle and you're losing differentiation. You're losing, quote unquote, objectivity. Now, this isn't to say that some people aren't to blame because certainly some people are. But often in these ongoing conflicts, everyone's participating in some way and everyone's somewhat, at least somewhat to blame for the pattern, if not uh, 50% of the blame is on them. And so uh, it's, it's hard. You, it, it, there's a cultural push to side with things. I mean, that's what reality TV is all about and what you know, the media is all about. It's like, you know, is Martin Shkreli an evil person? You know, are Republicans evil or good? Are Democrats evil or good? We're always pulled into these black and white object relations, splitting immature kinds of evaluations of categories and the world. And when as therapists, people come to us and ask us and tell us a story, we tend to, especially when we're anxious and regressing, we tend to demonize one person and angelize the other person. And it's hard not to fall into that trap. And as a therapist, it's important to work really hard on not giving into that. And it requires a tremendous amount of practice, tremendous amount of consultation, maturity, frankly, a lot of wisdom. It's, it's, it's hard because there are, again, there are some times where you do want to side, uh, you know, with one person. And so figuring that out in terms of what's the most helpful position is is um, is beneficial. 
having said all this, I'm just realizing now that this is this is why I don't do well at dinner parties. I was at a party recently or a dinner uh, with some old friends and the conversation slowly, you know, drifted towards politics. And suddenly we were talking about Trump and stuff. And I, in my head, I was just like, I don't want to participate in this conversation. It's there's, there's really nothing that, you know, can be said. Plus, as soon as I open my mouth, I'm, you know, it's going to be quite opinionated and not very soft. And I'm sure I'm going to annoy people. And so, um, even liberals, I'm sure I'll annoy them too. And so uh, I just, I just don't, I hope no one asks me what my opinion is. I'll just sit here and nod my head. And then my old friend turned to me and he said, you know, Kirk, what, what do you think? I'm sure you have some opinions. And because I had had all this kind of pent up energy around it, I just kind of came back at him real harshly. And I was just like, Oh, you don't want to know my opinion. Don't, don't even ask me. Don't even ask. And it came across kind of like a dick. And he was like, Oh man, geez, sorry. Excuse me for asking, you know? And then I spent the next five minutes trying to apologize when all I needed to do was just provide some opinion about Trump and then move on. But, but my, my point is, is that I, have, and that story is only tangentially related to this point, which is that I don't side with anybody. I don't side with Republicans. I don't side with Democrats. I don't side with the Green Party. I don't side with the Socialists. I don't, you know, uh, side with the Independents. But I am on everyone's side. I'm on the Republican side. I'm on the Democrat side. I'm on the Independent side. I'm, I don't side with anybody, and yet I'm on everyone's side. And so uh, on every issue, on the abortion issue, I, I, I see the side of both sides. Specifically on the abortion issue, politically, I think the government has no right to dictate by law what a woman should and shouldn't do. I think that is up to the individual. But I totally get where pro-life people come from. You know, If you believe that life began at conception, then you want to protect that life. I get that. I don't think the government should get involved in that kind of stuff. I, I, I think, but I think the pro-life people have every right to state their opinion and to, um, as long as they stay out of politics, you know, you can certainly stand up and say, I believe life starts at conception and therefore I think people shouldn't get abortions. You can say that. You can try to convince people of that within reason. Uh, and I understand that. At the other, but, but, if you just you know looked at the way I voted, I vote the way a liberal votes, which is uh, pro-choice. Now, often, if you're pro-choice or, or pro-life, you hate the other side and don't listen to the other side and don't understand the other side. Whereas I have, tr- maybe it's just because of my training as a couples therapist, I see both sides and I, I don't side with either, but but and I see both sides, <laughs> and I wish everyone would stop fighting. <laughs> and there's an easy answer, which is like the government shouldn't be involved in that. Um, you're both right. And the government shouldn't be involved in that. So my point is, is that when I was at that party and someone calls on me to talk about politics and whatnot, I just know that when I open my mouth, I'm going to piss everyone off because I don't take sides. And yet I take everyone's side. And so if, if when you sit down at a dinner party, people is particularly now they're either, a hundred percent, hundred and ten percent against Trump, or a hundred and ten percent pro-Trump. And so, when people ask me my opinion, if I just told them what I thought about it, the the Trump people will hate me because I'm siding with the liberals, and the liberals will hate me because I'm siding with Trump. I would never side with Trump, but um, I, I might side with like the some of the Republican notions about what government should and shouldn't do, or how our society should be run or something. I mean, there, there are things about Republicans that are fine. You know, the publicized things are ridiculous, you know, anti-science, uh, anti-women, anti-race, anti-ethnicity, anti-diversity, I guess I should say. But there are things about Republicans that are great that I think anyone could uh, get behind. You know, as I've said in other podcasts, you know, the Republican notion of a smaller government and lesser taxes, I think all of us would be like, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> let's, let's have lesser taxes. I mean, the older I get, I'm just like, my God, I pay a lot in taxes, you know, and I, I calculate all the taxes, not just income tax, but also sales tax, property tax, tax, uh, tax on, um, 
There's just a lot of different taxes, you know, Social Security. Now, I see the benefits and all that, but but and probably would advocate for more taxes because I believe in in social programs. But the idea of lesser taxes is kind of nice, right? <laughs> and so there's nothing wrong or of reducing the waste in government spending, you know, putting it that way. You know, Republicans are big on that. Whether or not they ever do it, you know, of course, is completely uh, debatable. Uh, because uh, many Republicans would actually argue that they don't. But anyway, the point is, is that as a therapist, when you're working with clients, that ability to not side with either, but side with both is a very helpful paradigm to be able to uh, exhibit. And I say paradigm because it's not just forcing yourself to not side with people. It's the bodily, uh, you know, lifelong ongoing existence of not siding with anybody and yet siding with everybody. So, uh, yeah, I don't know why I went down a political jag there. I'm sure I pissed off a few people. Uh, so sorry if I did that. All right, let's read our next email. <laughs> Thought I would end this episode with yet another patron email. This is patron Chana. She or he writes in, or they. Hi, Dr. Honda. Thanks to your podcast, I am now... Thanks to your podcasts, I am now an expert in cluster B personality disorders. You have explained how if a child is not parented properly during the first three years of his or her life, a child has a fair chance of developing narcissistic personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, or borderline personality disorder. And the symptoms can be reduced with good therapy later in life. My question is, if a child was not given the proper love, admiration, support, consistency, structure during his or her first three years of life, can the parents undo the damage with great parenting when the child is four and up? Okay, chiming in here. Yes. The, this is a great question. The answer is yes. Therapy is just a replacement for what parents should have done. So if, for instance, you have a child and she grows up having been uh, mistreated or n- not uh, parented well in the first three or four years of life, and then the parents somehow figure this out and decide that they're going to turn a new leaf and really make an effort to be consistent, to be loving, to be warm, to be reflective, to be secure, to not burden the child with things, to be healthy themselves, to be attuned, to um, be flexible. If, if the parents manage to do that after the child is four, uh, the, the child will emerge with problems because the first three or four years of your life cannot be erased. And a lot of that stuff, uh, to some extent, becomes difficult to really erase later uh, with anything. But you can significantly um, turn back that uh, clock, so to speak. Having said that, I have seen situations where parents have attempted this and it it, pro, it it didn't doesn't work very well because again the first few years of your life are critical in terms of your personality development it, that it's hard to um, to uh, erase that having said that there are cases where that absolutely happens you you'll have kids who are terribly mistreated in their first few years of life and then are either adopted into a different family or uh, the parents, again, turn a- themselves around somehow. And s- s- many kids will grow up without any symptoms of any sort, let alone a personality disorder. So it depends on a lot of things. It depends on your genetics. It depends on the circumstances. depends on how bad it was. depends on the resources available to you and your family. It depends on the way you interpreted these events when you were a child. So it's there's a lot of factors that are not easy to measure and monitor, but it's definitely worth an effort. If you have a, if, if you somehow, and I've been in situations like this where 
I have a five-year-old that it, it shows sign of early personality problems and will work hard with the parents to try to change the way that they parent. And in my mind, I'm thinking we might be preventing a full-blown personality disorder. This young person, this five-year-old might emerge into adulthood with slight personality issues, but they won't be as you know, blown out of proportion if we manage to get the parents to attune well and to parent well. Um, the reason why I said that therapy is just a replacement for a parent should have done is what often happens is the child is mistreated as a young person and then continues to be mistreated later on. And then when they're 30, 40 years old, that's when they enter therapy. And then the therapist, in essence, has to provide that that person what they should have been provided when they were quite young, you know, reflecting their emotions, being stable, unconditional positive regard, being attuned, not uh, imposing your will or your feelings onto that person, listening well. Those are all things that the child should have been provided when they were, you know, very young. And so, uh, so can parents provide that? Yes. In fact, when parents provide it, it's much more effective theoretically than when a therapist provides it because people really, really want their parents to give them those things. Even kids who grow up in, in, you know, good homes will have longings for certain kinds of interactions with their parents. And it can go a lot longer and, and be a lot more intense and beneficial when the uh, healing relational experiences occur within your family. And that's why as a family and couples therapist, I, when I'm at my best, I'm trying to engineer healing experiences between people in my office rather than me providing those experiences. I want to engineer those between the members because people naturally care much, much more about or they long for uh, attention, love, reparation with their family members much more than they would from a therapist that they don't know that well. So that is that. Hope that answers the question, patron Chana. So if you're not already a patron, do so because your emails get preference. To be honest, I get a lot of emails and I basically only have time for patron emails. <laughs> and so... If you're not a patron and you email me, in all likelihood, I won't be able to get to it on the air. So I apologize for that, but it basically is just, just don't have the time because the patrons give me enough material as is. All right. Well, thanks for joining me on this patron email journey. Take care of yourself because you deserve it. <laughs>